That is the song Don't Push the Button. It's by the Dead Rocks. It appears on their album International Brazilian Surfs, and it appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. Find out more about the band over at deadrocks.com.br. Of course, you can find the links in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. The website of this here podcast, Monster Kid Radio, devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I want to welcome you to episode 81 of the podcast. I am your host, Derek M. Cook, and I'm excited to have you here because this week we're going to be talking about a movie that I really dig, even though I haven't seen it in a very long time. We're talking about the 1959 monster sci-fi film, The Alligator People, starring Beverly Garland, Lon Chaney, and a bunch of other people that you're going to hear me talk about with returning guest sculptor Tom Bigler. Tom's the one that recommended we take a look at this movie, and I'm so glad that he did because this movie is a lot of fun. I listened to the soundtrack quite a bit on my iPod, so it was fun to revisit the film whose music has become very familiar to me over the years. I mentioned our website. Again, it's monsterkidradio.net. You can find links to everything that we talk about here on the show over there. Plus, there's lots to keep you busy between episodes, like links to our YouTube page, our Live 365 channel, and our Flickr album. Also over there, you're going to find links to our Facebook group. You can join the group and chat it up with Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes. We also have a Facebook page that you can like. We're trying to get to 300 likes by the end of this month. Over on Facebook is where I announce things like our nomination in this year's Rondo Awards. The nominations for the Rondo Awards have been announced over at rondoaward.com or look them up over in the Classic Horror Film Board or follow the link in the show notes. Again, there will be a link that goes directly there. Monster Kid Radio is nominated in category number 23, Best Horror Media, And I want to thank everybody who helped nominate us and put us on the ballot for Best Horror Media over at the Rondo Awards. This is a real treat for me. I'm excited to be nominated with so many other great podcasts, shows that I listen to. I look at the list of other podcasts here under Best Multimedia Horror, and a lot of these guys and gals have a permanent home on my iPod. I listen to a lot of these shows, and I'm touched and I'm honored to be included among them. And I love going through the ballot at the Rondo Awards because it always tells me what I missed in the previous year. It tells me what movies I might have missed out on, what special editions, re-releases, interviews, magazines, magazine covers, toys, things like that. It tells me what I missed out on that I really need to well, play a little bit of catch up with. I'd like to direct everybody over to the ballot and encourage them to go ahead and fill out the ballot as best as you can. You do not have to vote in every category. However, you can only vote once. The ballot's old school. You just send an email to the guy running the show and his email address is T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. Only vote in the categories that you care about, that you know anything about. You're not, again, under any obligation to vote for all the categories. We would appreciate your support. We would appreciate your vote, although I would really encourage you to vote for your favorites in every one of these categories. I know that when I fill out my ballot, I'm going to spend a lot of time looking at all the different nominees, everybody who is involved. I'm specifically looking at category number nine. That's Best Independent Film. I'm going to throw my vote toward The Giant Spider, directed by Christopher R. Mim, who's been a guest here on the show in the past. He's going to be on the show again. We want to keep it in the Monster Kid Radio family, you know? And it's a great film. Anyway, it's a great, it's probably his best to date. Speaking of which, I cannot wait to see his next one. I think I'll play a trailer for that here in a little bit. 
Makes me wish I was in Minnesota for the premiere. Now, if you want to get a hold of Monster Kid Radio between episodes, you can shoot us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or give us a call at our voicemail line, which is at 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-479-5657. If you're in the Portland, Oregon area, I'm going to ask you to join me down at the Hollywood Theater this Thursday night. That's March 20th for the final film in the Cinescopio series, which has been doing nothing but showing Luce Libre films. This time around, they're showing Santo and Blue Demon versus the monsters. We're talking Frankenstein, Dracula, vampire women, mummies. There's a Cyclops. This is going to be a real blast. And if you're in the area, I would like to invite you to join us at this week's Monster Kid Radio Crash. If you do show up, please track me down and say hi. I'm real hard to miss. I'm the guy with the Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's having the most fun in the room. Speaking of fun, I want to go ahead and get to the alligator people with Tom Bigler right after this. Journey into double terror with the late night double feature with X, the fiend from beyond space and the wall people. A crew of interstellar explorers must fight an unstoppable alien fiend from beyond space, hell-bent on consuming them all. Will they survive? Can they survive? And on the same program, a man must fight to save his only child from the clutches of strange invaders who use their advanced technologies to steal sleeping children through their bedroom walls. Are your children safe? Two terrors to tear you apart in the late night double feature. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer, that's vodka and orange juice. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that's a screwdriver. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Inside this strange, forbidding plantation, on the edge of the death-laden bios, there is a horror beyond belief. A scientist turns his cobalt rays on the revolting, scaly monarchs of the swamps to transform men into hideous, living gargoyles, whose faces must be forever hidden from human sight. He didn't have to hit him. Quick and simplest way, Doctor. But these are people. You don't handle them like animals. 
Beverly Garland as the unwelcome visitor, haunted by the fear that the man she loves has become one of them. What are you doing? I'm not leaving here, Mrs. Hawthorne, until I get the answers to the questions that brought me here. What have you done with my husband? Lon Chaney as the hook-armed, hate-maddened Cajun. I'll kill you, alligator man! Just like I'd kill any four-legged gator! Suspense that will clutch you like quicksand. <coughs> pulling you down into bottomless depths of suffocating horror. I'm going to take this microphone, I'm going to place it directly underneath your face, and I'm going to ask you to start counting down from 20. 20. 19. <laughs> Derek. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Tom Bigler. How's it going, man? Excellent. It's, I'm happy to be here, Derek. Well, that was a very clunky introduction to Tom. We're going to talk about the movie The Alligator People, but before we get to that, Tom, how's it been going, man? It's been going good. I'm, uh, I have no complaints. Uh, the Northwest is getting little nibbles of spring off and on. Yes. So it's been pleasant. And I know, you know, compared to a lot of people's weather lately, which has been insane, we're generally pretty mild here, but it's been, it's been fine. I'm just anxious to get some sun for a longer stretch. You and me both, man. You and me both. Yeah. And you've been busy with some artwork, which we might talk about at some point. Maybe, maybe we will. Maybe. And maybe we won't. But no, we probably will. Okay. All right. Okay. Sounds good. All and right. we're going to talk about the alligator people. This is one that you recommended. It's one that I hadn't seen in a long time. Directed by Roy Del Ruth from 20th Century Fox. I had forgotten it was a 20th Century Fox film. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it kind of struck me as odd because some of the players in this movie are not actors or actresses that I associate with 20th Century Fox when I think about movies we would normally talk about on Monster Kid Radio. Lon Chaney Jr. I mean, he's a universal guy. You know, I guess... I had forgotten about his uh, 20th Century Fox film. Well, he bounced around, didn't he? Towards the end, he was probably just doing movies, whatever. whatever. Yeah, whatever he could get, sure. Yeah. But... I just will forever associate him with Universal because of his work there. Oh, but, of course. Yeah. But, of course, he's at home in a monster movie. It doesn't really matter what studio it is. And the Alligator People definitely has you know, all the trappings of a 1950s monster movie with a little bit of science fiction thrown in with the radiation and the electricity and the... Kind of sort of mad scientist. Mm -hmm. The Cobalt 60. The Cobalt Bomb. Cobalt Bomb. They keep I calling it that. a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Beverly Garland in this. Yeah, one of my personal favorites, as you know. Oh, yeah? Tell us about that. Oh, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> no, she's just, a, you know, you have your love for Julie Adams, probably because of maybe when you saw her in Creature for the first time, and that kind of expanded from there. Sure. I'm kind of like that with Bev Garland, where I saw her in It Conquered the World a long time ago. And she she generally, I haven't seen all her movies, of course, but I like her because she's, besides, very beautiful. She plays such a strong female character in so many of her movies. Um, as we talk about, we will, with the alligator people coming up, you know, she is going to find what happened to her husband no matter what. And I just appreciate female characters in the 50s that weren't window dressing or they're only to make the hero look better, things like that. She really plays strong parts in almost the majority of her movies. She's got a lot of spunk. Ooh, lots of spunk. Chutzpah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she does. No, she's great in this too. I mean, it's her story basically. I mean, it's about the movie's called The Alligator People, but it's her story. Mm-hmm. And she's great in this. And then I think I mean, those are our two real leads. I mean, Lon Chaney's probably not in it enough to be considered one of the leads of the films, but you put his name on a monster movie. That's just what you do when you get involved in a film like this. But there is a pretty decent cast. I mean, this film's cast well. I mean, I really like Bruce Bennett as Dr. Lorimer. Yes, Bruce Bennett. I did some research on him. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that was interesting. Maybe you, you want to just kind of start the movie yeah. going yeah. in chronological, and we'll bring up these characters as we go? Why not? Why not? Is that cool? Sure. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Uh, the movie starts with... This insane asylum setup, I guess. Well, they don't call it insane no, asylum. It's it's yeah. a doctor's office and you know hospital facility and neuropathology, I believe, is what you see that's on correct. the door. Yeah, I happened to look that up, and it's kind of odd. His that's one thing about these fifties movies: all the mixed science that goes on. <laughs> but I looked up neuropathology, and it's just what you would think: it's the study of nerves through pathology, which means biopsies or autopsies or whole brain autopsies. So it's kind of a weird field of medicine for this man to be in considering what he's doing with the story. I don't see him biopsying Bev's brain or anything, but yeah, but anyway, no, when we get into it, I mean, Beverly Garland, she's Jane Marvin at this point and we're going to spoil I mean, it's kind of hard not to when we talk about some of these movies. This one has some things that happen at the very beginning of the movie that if we tell you what happens, it's going to spoil the film. Mm -hmm. And so heads up, if you haven't watched The Alligator (laughs) People yet, uh, you need to. Hit pause, go watch it. It's only an hour 15, then come back. We'll be waiting. It's on YouTube and it's on Daily Motion. So go watch it. Like I said, we'll be waiting for you. We'll just sit around and wait for about an hour 15. Mm -hmm. All right. So, anyway, <laughs> Bruce Bennett, that's an, you know, I looked him up and I, I heard some interesting stuff on him on the yeah. internet. Do you know much about him? I really don't. You know, it's hard to see in the 50s, but he must have been an incredibly athletic guy in his youth because he, it says he won the uh, silver medal in shot put at the uh, 1928 Olympics, <laughs> which is pretty substantial. And then I guess he was set to play Tarzan and uh, he hurt his shoulder, so he couldn't do the filming Hmm. and then later he actually was cast in the new adventures of tarzan so in his youth he was quite a hunky guy okay but i guess at that point he was known as herman bricks and i guess he he felt he was typecast as a sophisticated jungle man so i guess he, he he disappeared for a few years and came back as bruce bennett and started up a whole nother career in acting. Okay, well, that's one way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> it worked, I guess. He, no, why not? It sounded like he had a pretty fairly successful career when he came back. So well, that's I cool. Wanna... I mean, and right before this, he was in The Cosmic Band, which is another monster sci-fi-ish kind of film as well. And I, I don't really know much more outside of just a few monsterish kind of things that he did, you know, genre-type roles, but that's mm-hmm. about it. Although a quick look on the IMDb says that he lived to 100 years old. I saw that. That's amazing. Yeah. As I said, he was evidently quite a specimen. So <laughs> anyway, in the first scene, so we have uh, Dr. Lorimer. He pulls up to Dr. Wayne McGregor's office, yep. played by Douglas Kennedy. Do you know much about Douglas Kennedy? I know he was in a lot of westerns. I don't. 
he, I, I guess I'm coming to this without knowing a lot about the, uh, the players in the film. I know he was in The Amazing Transparent Man, which I kind of think. But beyond that, I don't really know much. I guess he was in Invaders from Mars. Oh, I was? Think. Okay. Yeah, I, I read that, and I haven't watched that in a long time. The original, not the remake. And he, he played one of the cops, I guess, that got taken over by the aliens. Anyway, so Dr. Lorimer pulls up, goes up into the office, and they start having an exchange concerning... Dr. McGregor's new assistant nurse, played by Bev. Right, which would be Jane Marvin, is what they call her. Jane Marvin at this point, yes. And now, she's not in the room. No. Now they're, they're, they're talking about her as if... I mean, you say they, they call her, her his assistant, but there's this kind of weird, is it an assistant, or is she a patient? And they start talking about, well, let me just show you. And he brings her in. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> which I, I guess in the fifties, if your boss says, "Hey, come here and lay down on this couch," and uh, let, me <laughs> let me shoot you up and put you under a trance, that's what you do. <laughs> Somebody call HR. <laughs> <laughs> they should call HR on Doctor uh, Lorimer too. He was kind of a hound dog. Oh gosh, yeah. He was I'm, like, I'm, "Is she pretty?" <laughs> and it, it happens a couple of times. I'm glad it you brought does. that up. Because almost the first, it is the first thing out of his mouth. Is she pretty, isn't it? Yeah. And then a couple pretty? of times, he and looks at pretty. her files. Oh, oh, she is pretty. <laughs> yeah. When can I see her? <laughs> but it's just odd because that's the only, I mean, it's it's an odd choice for me because there's no motivation for him being a hound dog in that, except for just being the 50s, I guess. Well, and if anybody's going to call Beverly Garland pretty, it's going to be you, right? I mean, That's right. Not. That's right. She's my gal. <laughs> was I met her a couple times? She was oh, real nice. Really? She used to own the Beverly Garland Hotel in Hollywood. Okay. And once a year, she did a show, a celebrity and collectors. I can't remember the name of it. It was the very first show Mona and I went to uh, Hollywood collector wise when we got together. So it was probably oh god, almost twenty years ago. Um, but yeah, she used to have a big show every year where there'd be tons and tons of. Uh, celebrities to sign and a lot of guys from her era that's when i met john agar for the one time and he signed something for us and oh. i can't even tell you there was just a big room that was just tons of tables there was probably 50 tables in there that just had celebrities so it's pretty amazing but well she passed away several years ago right and she quit doing that but that was a, a great show well i'm jealous man that sounds like a good time and yeah, she was, was. cool yeah, she was real sweet. Did you tell her yeah. you had a crush on her? <laughs> did you get taken out by security? <laughs> I don't think I did. I did tell uh, when I met Dee Wallace, I used to have a crush on her. <laughs> but anyway, that's a whole other story. Used to. But, <laughs> well, oh yeah, well, my wife was standing right next to me. Oh, so I see. So you got to behave. It's, I understand. it's more diplomatic just to, to let it go there. I, I understand. Yeah, I'll, I'll remember that if I ever meet Julie Adams. <laughs> I'll remember that. So the two doctors hook Bev up, or Jane Marvin. Well, first they shoot her up with sonium pentothal. Right. And then they hook her up to a lie detector, and then they start hypnosis. And Go that's ahead. where they do the countdown. The, the countdown <laughs> that's, from a, that's our clunky countdown from yeah, the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. This is something that they've done before, obviously, because Jane has no problem. It's like, oh, it's time to do it again? Okay, doctor, mm -hmm. no problem. Lays down smiling. I mean, she's mm -hmm. happy to do it. it. Makes me wonder how many times this has been done. And that's true, and that's one of the things, too. And he said he had an inkling that she had some issues, and he, he came across it by accident. He, he made that comment. 
Dr. Kennedy. And it's like, well, how do you accidentally, what, what's the accident that leads you to shoot somebody up full of truth serum? <laughs> yeah, Oops. It's just odd. Yeah. But anyway, a lot of it's just convenient writing, I'm sure, to, to, to get the thing going. But uh, Right, because once we get into the trance, she starts recounting the story about what her name really is. Mm-hmm. And we find out that she's Joyce Webster, and she was recently married to uh, Paul Webster. Paul Webster, yes. Played by Richard Crane. And she starts telling us this tale, and then the rest of the movie is this tale that she's sharing with us, telling us what happened, mm-hmm. which I'm okay with for the most part. There are a few parts in the story where we break away from her point of view, which she wouldn't know. There's a lot of things <laughs> regarding how this story is told that are I find odd. Okay. You know, just like that. Yeah. Or just like if you're recounting, I talked to Mona, my wife, about this. It's if you're recounting something – under hypnosis, she uses a lot of alliteration. She retells it like she's almost writing a novel. You yeah. Know? And I don't think in reality, once you've lived through it, that you would go chronologically because she's telling it like she doesn't know what's going to happen next when she obviously would know because it happened. I don't know. Maybe well, that's, that's true. Part. No, no, that's true. No, you're right. There's a couple things like that. I mean, I'm still all in. I'm still enjoying the film, but there are a few oh, moments here and there. You know, really, you could have dropped the opening and the ending sequence. I agree. That framing piece, and you'd still have a fine film. I agree. Granted, you wouldn't get a doctor going, oh, she's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and she's I pretty. Put her under. Put her under. <laughs> put her under. <laughs> but uh, I wonder, too, if that's just a product of a new and interesting kind of quote-unquote science, I'm sure you know the whole thing, hypnosis and sodium pentothal, that's all kind of new to people, so it's like, well, let's put it in. Well, they put everything in, yeah, the hypnosis, the the truth serum, the radiation, the electricity, the millions of volts that need to be under constant control. I mean, all this stuff has been put into this film. 20th Century Fox is not known for doing the monster movies of this era. I mean, this is still Universal's ballgame, and it seems like they took – all the elements that Universal and some of the other smaller players have been playing with and just shoved them all into this one film. I mean, the movie even opens up like it was shot on the back lot at Creature from the Black Lagoon because of... And I loved that. I love a swamp setting. Oh, gosh, it's a great set. Yeah. It's a great set, and I love the full music score. It feels like something... You know, from Universal again, it's by Irving Gertz. I dig that quite a bit. I've got that on my iPod and I've listened to it quite a bit. So it's got all these elements that they're just going to shove it in here. And we're going to be told the story of Joyce Webster and what happens to her and her husband. Now, they just got married. Correct. And they're on a train going, I guess, to their honeymoon, I would assume. Yeah, I don't think they really say specifically. They're just on their way somewhere. Yeah, to right. their, on their honeymoon, but they don't give a location, I don't think. No, not at all. They're just on a train and... You know, an unfortunate stereotype of the late 50s comes in with mail and food. <laughs> Every person of color in this film is a servant, talks with the yes and no oh, sir. Yes, yes, and it's, yes. It's of its time. It it's is. really all you can really say about that. And they're enjoying time as a newlywed couple. I mean, they are obviously in love with each other, and Joyce is very happy that are married. They talk a little bit about Paul's background. Apparently he was in the war or a war and was shot down. Yeah, I guess he was shot down. His plane was shot down and he was terribly, terribly injured, 
which she brings up because I guess she talked to the do- his doctor at the time, and he said, "Oh, he's his face is gone, every limb is broken, he's burned beyond recognition." And then Paul says, "Well, don't you believe him?" She says, "Well, of course not. Look at you; you're as handsome as you ever were." Right. And then at that point. He was almost ready to tell her what's going on. He starts to tell her. He's got a secret. Yeah, he's got a secret, and he knows there's something going on. We, well, we obviously know because of the name of the movie. but um, <laughs> True. But uh, he's getting ready to tell her, and then he's interrupted by your friend, and I'm not going to do an impression of that guy because I'd want a bunch of yeah. hate mail. Hate mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, but he comes servant, in with, yeah. a, with a batch of well wishes and telegrams for the new, newlywed couple. Right. So they start going over this, and then Paul gets one that seems to upset him quite a bit. Yeah, it really rattles him. Yeah, and we don't know what it says or anything. We just know he gets pretty upset by it, and she sees he's upset. And she, he shuts down. It's almost as if he becomes a different person there for a second. Mm-hmm. He got some horrible news. It's time to go. He runs out into the hallway. He asks when the train's going to stop again. and It's not scheduled to stop for a while, but there's a half-minute train stop coming up for mail. He's going to get off then. And make a phone call, as long as it has a phone, he says. Yeah. So. And when he gets off the train, I mean, he doesn't really tell Joyce what's going on. He just up and he's off. Mm-hmm. And she, as the train is pulling away and she starts screaming for Paul, we see him just walk off. Mm-hmm. Kind of resigned. Yeah. yeah. And that's basically, then we get a lot of uh, her being upset and uh, without any sound, and Paul's gone. Yep. But basically, next, we have uh, the... Bev's been trying to find her husband for months. It says she's been searching and searching, and she finally finds some information by looking. Evidently, she found his class ring, an LSU ring. Yeah, I think so. They do enough investigation to find, or she does enough investigation to find out where he went to school. He was part of a fraternity. So she contacts LSU. They have an address for him in Louisiana called the Cypresses. I was going to say, off we go to the Cypresses. Off we go. So our next scene, we're actually, she's dropped off at the railroad station in the middle of Louisiana. Yeah. With nobody around except for a cobalt bomb in a big <laughs> box sitting on the deck. <laughs> sitting on the deck that she herself later sits on. Oh, that's Bev. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you. She's a tough lady. I was, I was a little surprised by that. I mean, you see the radiation symbols on there. Yeah. Like, Warning. come on. <laughs> This is bad news. You don't just sit on that like it's a bench. (laughs) And then as she's waiting, we get our first introduction to Lon. Lon Chaney Jr. What was his character's name in this? Manon. So he drives up in in his rickety old pickup to pick up, evidently, the uh, cobalt. Cobalt, yeah. Yeah. Lon's looking a little ragged, you know, at this point in his career. He's... Yeah, it's 1959, and we've talked about this in the past on Monster Kid Radio with other people as well. And you might, you and I have talked about it a couple of times in person. Lon had his demons, <clears throat> and as he got older, as his career goes along, his fight with those demons is just not going well for him. And I mean, he's a bigger guy; he looks kind of run down. His accent's a little jokey. He has a hook, a hook he, hand. He has a hook hand that looks a little jokey. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate uh, because, I mean, Lon in the 40s was the man. And to kind of see him slide closer and closer to Dracula versus Frankenstein is a little, 
a little tough to watch, but he's still charismatic. He's still funny. He is. He's, he's with the exception of Bev, he's what I'm watching in this movie. Yeah. He gives a good performance. He does. You know, really. He's charismatic. You can't help but watch him. But he's creepy. Very creepy. Get even creepier later, which we'll get into. Yeah. But. Oh, you're going to the Cypress's baby? Get in my truck, baby. No problem, <laughs> sweetheart. Come on, baby. And she does. She gets in the truck. Well, she has to find Paul. I know. Maybe those blinders of finding her husband are on just a little too tight. Because that, that to me, is red flag bad news. Do not enter. Yeah. Well, as they're driving along, we learn that Manon does not like alligators. No. At all. Now, we learn later that the reason he's got a hook in is because an alligator bit his hand off. But at this point, it's more just, I hate him. I hate those slimy gators. <laughs> True. <laughs> He runs one over with his truck, and I don't know how I feel about that. I, I don't know if it was a stunt gator. It was shot in reverse. It looks like they hit a gator with a truck. Mona didn't like uh, – she had a problem. I don't like – you know, back then, I guess you could do that without too much worry, you know, from the different associations to protect these animals. But, yeah, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with a lot of that because yeah. they could have, certainly. Yeah, and it is shot a little funny. It does feel different. Like, they pulled the gator in front of the truck, and then they cut away before you see anything. So I, I don't know if they really did run one over. I mean, we also saw some people wrestling with an alligator before, and later on, Lon's shooting at him. It's it's a little uncomfortable for me as well. But, you know, back then, Hollywood didn't have the controls. You're right. Yeah. So. I hate them gators. Hate them gators. Oh, and that's how he sounds. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lon's just fantastic. Yeah. But we don't stick with him too long because he drops her off at the Cypresses. And then he's off for a while. I mean, he's gone for a little while. Yeah, he must go back to his shack. Drink some of that homemade moonshine that he's making. Yeah. So Joyce arrives at the Cypresses, the nice big plantation building of the Cypresses. She's greeted at the door by Luann, I think the maid. It was either the maid or the butler, one of the two. I think it was the butler, actually. Oh, I think you're right. I think it was the butler. Yeah. I- <laughs> There's this flash of recognition on his face when she starts asking about Paul Webster. Yes. It's more obvious on uh, Mrs. Hawthorne's face. It's amazingly obvious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As an audience member, we see it. I think Joyce saw it. Mrs. Lavinia Hawthorne, played by Frida Einscourt, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I mean, she was in The Return of the Vampire. She's done a couple of things here and there that I've seen. She was in Thriller, that Boris Karloff show. Did an oh. episode of that at one point. I liked her in this. She's very, like, she's holding on to this plantation lifestyle, although I don't know what the plantation is doing in the swamp, like how it's an operation. But <laughs> she was, I liked her. She was just, I talked to Mona about this, and you can see a, to me, a difference in acting style between her and Bev. It's kind of like hers is an older style that's more reading the lines in a certain way instead of reacting to who you're acting against. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, no, that makes sense. A lot of times when she would read her lines, it was almost to me, and the same with uh, somebody we'll meet later, Dr. Um, Sinclair, Mm -hmm. where it's to me, it's almost like they're reading their lines the way they think they should read them as opposed to reading them as you would if you were talking to a person. That's It's not as naturalistic. No. 
And she'd been acting since the mid-30s, doing films since then at least. And if you go back and you watch a lot of movies from the 30s and even early 40s, there is kind of a staginess Mm -hmm. to the performance and the delivery and that sort of thing. It works in this film for me because that staginess, that kind of uprightness, uptightness, it's a generational thing, but it also makes it easier to see that she's obviously different, obviously maybe even hiding something. Mm -hmm. So I liked her in it. But yeah, there's definitely a difference. You're right, because Garland is very reactive mm-hmm. to what's going on. And maybe that's that spunk we were talking about before, too, kind of coming to the surface. <laughs> so. But she's hiding something. She is clearly hiding something. As soon as you know, Joyce says Paul Webster's name, oh, well, uh, yeah, no, don't know him. Nope, don't know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it wants her to go, wants to throw her out. Yeah, she shuts her down, says so you have to leave now. And the butler, or well, no, I can't remember if it was the butler or the maid, said, well, probably the butler, that there's no train until the morning. So Bev is going to have to stay overnight and accept the hospitality of the cypresses. I guess I have no choice. I have no choice. That was great. The way she would deliver those lines, filled with so much venom. I don't really have a choice, do I? You know, when she tells her, when Hawthorne tells her, She'll have to stay in her room all night. You can't leave. We're going to lock you in. I don't really have a choice. I just I love that moment. She's mm-hmm. so good at that. But while she's staying in her room, I mean, this is where we start to drift away a little bit, and the narrative becomes a little bit more about other people doing things. And this mm-hmm. is a, a kind of a point of view violation where Joyce wouldn't know what's happening elsewhere. Who's firing things off in the swamp? Well, she reacts to that in the story, but then we as an audience get to see Hawthorne and other people talking about it away from Joyce. So there's this weird kind of point of view thing going on. doesn't break the film for me. But yeah, Lon Chaney's firing shots off in the swamp. He's trying to kill them damn gators. I know, stinky, slimy (laughs) gators. Yeah. As if this whole setup wasn't creepy enough, there's a crazy guy out in the swamp shooting things. (laughs) And she's locked in a room. She can't get out. Nope, she's just listening to these shots. (laughs) Oh, man. And then the uh, the maid comes in to deliver her dinner. Mm-hmm. This is where I kind of like the two servants in this movie because Bev asks her what's going on. That's one thing I can do. Well, what are those shots? It's like, oh, I can't really tell you what's going on. But it's like, well, why don't you just say the truth? The, the crazy mammon is shooting the gators. Yeah. I mean, that would make the most sense. It'd be, oh, okay, that guy's crazy. I can see why he's shooting gators. Instead of making it so so much more sinister than it would have needed to be. Yeah, all you're doing is piquing her interest. Yeah. You know, making her want a little more. Which is not what Miss Lavinia wanted. No. And then Bev, in her sneaky way, she pockets her room key when the maid leaves. So now she has access to getting out of her room. Well, she gets out and she starts exploring the, the plantation. And, you know, she gets her detective hat on and she's trying to figure out what's going on. And to me, it's when we get to this point, maybe a little bit before at this point, I'm seeing some definite like shades of maybe I walked with a zombie a little bit. Like there's an outsider that comes into this family. And spoiler, (laughs) Paul Webster's (laughs) family. But there's this outsider that kind of comes into this family and is trying to, from the outside, learn what's going on and figure things out. And they're trying to hide things from her, hide things from each other, because they're hiding this. Well, obviously, Manon doesn't know what's going on with the alligator people. Otherwise, he'd shot them all up at this point. So there's a lot of 
mystery and suspicion things happening here. Mm-hmm. I think I Walk With a Zombie handles that better. And I'm not saying this ripped it off or anything like that, but there's shades of that here for me, which I thought was cool because I dig that movie quite a bit as well. I do like her snooping around the plantation set. I don't know where this was shot. I'm assuming in Hollywood somewhere, but I do like the location quite a bit. It feels mysterious and it feels like Beverly Garland doesn't belong there. Oh, I agree. And Hawthorne is now talking to Sinclair about the girl being here because she's freaked out. What are we going to do about her? And we meet Dr. Sinclair, I think for the first time, right? Correct. Yeah. And that's George McCready. Hawthorne goes to Sinclair, basically just talk about how they're going to handle Joyce. You know, he's under the impression that hopefully she doesn't know too much and that she can just go on their way and on her way. And he can continue his research, which as of right now, we don't know what his research is specifically. He's the not-so-mad-mad scientist here. I mean, everything that he's doing here, it has all the trappings of mad science, ooh, but he seems like a nice guy. And what he's trying to do here is altruistic and not evil or anything like that. He's just doing his thing and wants to be left alone. Do we see the flat face mask person at this point as well? That's a striking image for me, more striking than almost anything in the film. I really like the image they use for that. That image, I like that flat face kind of mask thing. And these are the people that the doctor's treating. And he's got some orderlies here, too, some barely young men to help hold people down or whatever. And I, well, we don't really see them very often unless we're actually in this set. But, yeah, they bring in this guy. He's got this flat face mask thing. I mean, it's – I don't know if we're describing it as best as we can, but it's all in white. And the face – it almost looks like the face has been pushed in a little bit and just kind of flattened. It's sheer white, too. It's not like you can see features on it or whatever. It looks like it could be a cross between a helmet and I don't know if I'm really making the most sense here, but it's a really interesting image. Yeah, it's like a terry cloth robe with a hood, but it's got a flat. It's kind of creepy. If I saw yeah. them walking around the swamp, I'd be a little bit more worried about them <laughs> than the gators. The logistics of using a mask like that one, it's just a strange. I mean, it looks cool. But I don't really understand the use usefulness of such a thing. But, right, right. But maybe they wet it. Maybe sure. they wet the top and it, it goes down on them. Anyway, we don't know. Yeah, either way. <laughs> these are the people that Dr. Uh, Sinclair is treating. And then, of course, Hawthorne. What are we going to do about the girl? Well, we got to get rid of her. we got to let her go on her way. Well, she's locked in a room, so she's safe. And then we go out to the swamp, and we're going to see that Joyce's instincts about coming here were correct because Paul's here. Yeah, Paul is here. Yeah. And we see Paul coming up to the cypresses, goes in the mm-hmm. side door. Then we see Bev in her room, and she can hear this music. And this is part of what I was talking about earlier. It's obviously her speaking to the doctors under hypnosis. Very much so. The, the way she describes what's going on is just so... Like she's trying to write a story. Yeah, like she's telling a story. Yeah, Yeah. as you know, with a lot of alliteration, a lot of description of things. But that's okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not bad. It's just, it is. She gets out. She wants to know what's playing the music. I think she even says at one point it sounded familiar. Yeah, there is something hauntingly familiar about that. And she goes down and she walks into the parlor, I guess, where the piano is to listen to the music. It's all dark, very Mm -hmm. dark in the room. And Paul, or... A somewhat 
reptilian-y Paul is playing the piano. And he turns. I think he thinks it must be Sinclair coming in. So he turns around kind of casually. He sees it's his wife. And he runs off. And at this point, she doesn't know that that was Paul, I don't believe. I mean, we know. But she didn't get a good look. And why would she think, you know, that would be her husband since he's all reptilian-y? And then he runs off and leaves some of the most filthy multiple footprints I've ever seen in my life. You remember the scene? <laughs> <laughs> These thick, sludgy kind of like, Huge. what? And he must have, it looked like he did the uh, Lord of the Dance. It almost looked like he did the Lord of the Dance <laughs> there because there's about 10 footprints in a three-foot area, which is kind of strange, but I guess that's what they do. And then she notices the footprints, of course, and that the keys are still wet. So she's quizzical about what's going on. This mystery has just gotten more mysterious. What is going on? I mean, does she suspect it's Paul at this point? I mean, it's Paul shaped. I didn't get the impression she really thought it was Paul at that point. I mean, we know. Yeah, we know. But Yeah. Well, and uh, Paul's run out. And Paul is running around in the swamp in a trench coat and a face full of scales. <laughs> and that's when he sees uh, uh, Hawthorne again driving up in her cool uh, station wagon. <laughs> I don't know what that was. It was a cool old station wagon. Yeah. And, and she talks to Paul and he... So I was like, just saw Joyce. Yeah, she can't see me. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know about that voice. It was an odd. <laughs> it gets even worse. I mean, it seems like it gets even more guttural later. Maybe that's maybe as he transforms, it's supposed right. to mean something, but it was kind of silly sounding to me. I agree. So he lets her know that she has to get rid of Joyce somehow and seen. <laughs> Yes. And then the next one, ho ho, that's when we uh, meet Dr. Sinclair, or Joyce meets Dr. Sinclair. Right. As he pulls up to the <laughs> front of the Cypresses in I love this it. totally cool amphibian car. I want one. Pulls right out of the swamp, right out of the water, pulls right up to the front door. And this is where he introduces himself to Joyce. He makes a comment about the how cool his little rig is they start to have a conversation and she pulls the same thing she did with uh, hawthorne where she she does the i'm mrs webster paul webster yeah and his credit sinclair doesn't <laughs> he doesn't flinch he doesn't flinch no no uh tale telltale giveaway from him uh, he is cool about it he does not flinch at all so basically, he has a short conversation with the, with the Joyce, and it's interesting. You can tell he's just trying to figure out what she knows, if she has any more than just an inkling of where Paul might be. They are kind of dancing around each other. Mm-hmm. This is probably one of my favorite human interaction scenes, the two of them together, because they're both really good at what they're doing. He still has a little bit of that kind of old school acting going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And she's reacting and getting his ways. He's walking off to his next point. It's it's a good scene. And like you said, he doesn't flinch at all. He does not show his cards at all. He's real. I bet he'd be good at poker. <laughs> but wait a minute. Joyce was supposed to be gone by now. She was supposed to get on the next train. What's she still doing here? And we're going to get to that in a minute. Because Oh, I thought you were asking me. I was oh, going to say, no, no. well, we find out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to find out. But not before we watch them play with the bomb. Ah, the bomb. Yes. Cobalt the, 60. The Cobalt 60. We got Dr. Sinclair in his lab setup, which is less lab and more grand room in the plantation with some 
electronic equipment moved into it. It doesn't feel like a mad scientist lab. And I keep saying mad scientist. He's not mad. But it doesn't feel like a scientist lab to me. It just feels like he's moved his equipment in and set up a shop. Mm -hmm. That's almost one of the things that I really like about that, is just taking this old structure with the stained glass, beautiful stained glass, and moving your futuristic giant uh, ray gun worked by cords and wires stuff. (laughs) I don't know. I couldn't tell. It doesn't look like there's glass or not. It just looks like it's an opening from one room to the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got this radioactive activity. I mean, it's... Well, it's a okay. cobalt bomb. I mean, this is not going to protect you. I think there's a 10-foot radius maximum on oh, a cobalt there? bomb, so as long as you're past 10 feet, you're okay. But Beverly Garland was sitting on it. <laughs> I well. guess it was in, it was shielded maybe at that point. Who knows? Yeah, it was shielded. I, they took it out of the shielding. But. but while he's playing with his cobalt, that's when she starts snooping around the house a little bit more. She finds some letters. Mm-hmm. She's snooping around the, in one of uh, in Hawthorne's desk in her study. And uh, Hawthorne comes down the stairs and questions Luann, the maid, about where Joyce is. And she said she will not leave. Right. She wouldn't get on the train. And she's in your study. Is this where the revelation comes on his mother? Yes, I is believe that when so. She admits it? Yeah. Bev tries to imply that uh, Hawthorne did something to Paul and then hurt him or killed him or something. And then she basically breaks down and says, why would I try to, it's my own, it's my son. So this is where, yeah, she admits that Joyce was right, really, that mm-hmm. Paul isn't somewhere around there and things are going on. Though we really still don't know right. the situation because she doesn't explain any of the science of it, so to speak. Well, I would argue that once Dr. Lack Sin- of- <laughs> when Dr. Sinclair comes in, he hardly explains the science either. <laughs> It's like, ooh, alligators, radiation, pituitary gland. Hydrocortisone. Uh, yeah, like, what? <laughs> and look, this lizard lost its tail and thrown back. See? Oh. Okay. Science. And this all happens in the morning, and then I don't know what they do for the rest of the day, because the next scene seems to be at night. There's not a lot that happens, but time certainly passes, and we get back to Paul wandering around in his trench coat, and this makeup on his face. And Joyce sees him and chases him around. And he goes running off into the swamp. He runs off into the swamp in the rain, torrential rain. Because, of course, it's raining. Of course. While I was trying to look up some information about the movie, I did stumble across a website. I think it was AtomicMonsters.com where they're reviewing the movie. And they mentioned that. Beverly Garland screams the name Paul 41 times in this film. <laughs> and I'd say half of it's during this scene because she's just running around the swamp yelling, Paul, Paul, Paul. It's raining. She's getting drenched from the head up. She's falling in the mud. Her dress gets torn. If you watch this scene, this is one of the things I like about in the, in the whole thing back then in the 50s. You know, she's running around the swamp. It's raining like crazy. You can see she's actually running around actual alligators. Yeah, this isn't a set. This, no, this is, is a great location. And in fact, she actually almost kicks one in the head that's probably a five or six foot alligator when she's running. Right. And that's, you know, but that's Bev. I keep saying it, but she'll do it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. She doesn't mess around. No. <laughs> no, she's great in this. Now, as she's running around, she's 
running from the gators, but at one point she's scared by a snake. <laughs> well, fortunately, Manon heard her oh, screaming earlier. Her hero. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to, oh boy. Creepy. This is about, this is about to get creepy. So Manon finds her, saves her, takes her back to his shack, which is basically all it is. But it's shack dry. in the swamp. Yep. For somebody who hates gators, he sure doesn't mind living near them. <laughs> and she's drenched, and he's going to protect her. He saves her life. And I see where this is going. And you can see. it's you oh, know, it's, He, he, it's he makes some comments about taking off your wet clothes. And, huh. and then he offers her a little drink. He pours a big glass of some brown liquid, which is probably whiskey. And she he offers it to her. She doesn't want it. And he takes it and just swigs it down. One huge gulp yeah yeah she has a little sip and it's like ah, oh i like it i made it myself and i'm and probably pretty sure that was actual whiskey but yeah who knows but she doesn't want to take off her clothes gee strangely enough yeah that seems but he like says well here effect. just let me put this blanket around you oh, that'll this, keep you warm this is all after he inconspicuously closes and locks the door oh yeah i didn't see that part and and at one point when she, he's talking about you know drying off, kicking off those wet clothes, he actually reaches down and kind of hooks the side of her dress mm-hmm. and starts yanking on it with his finger, like, "Go ahead, take these clothes off." That's just creepy. We know what's about to happen here, mm-hmm. or at least what, what, what Manon wants to have happen. Yeah, he comes back around her from the back, puts a blanket around, then grabs her and starts. Trying to force himself on her, basically. Don't you owe me? I saved your so life. Saved. You should be grateful. Wow. And and she doesn't like it. She starts screaming, of course, and he punches her right in the face and knocks her cold. Wow. At this point, I wonder, because he, he knocks her onto the bed. She's unconscious. And I look at Lonza. He pauses for, for a couple seconds, and I almost wonder if he's conflicted. Because it almost seems like, oh, what have I done? You yeah, know? there and is then, that moment. And then he thinks, oh, but she looks pretty good. And then... Well, we've already been told how pretty she is a couple of times. And that was a medical opinion. I mean, so you know it's fat. A licensed, licensed yes. professional. What is going to happen to Joyce in the clutches of Manon in his shack in the swamps in the bayou surrounded by alligators? What's going to happen? Well, you're going to have to come back for episode number 82 here in a couple of days to find out where Tom and I will finish talking about the film itself and talk a little bit more about a few other things that have to do with the movie. Tom's continued crush on Beverly Garland, the makeup of the film, what we ultimately thought of the face and the rest of the body makeup, and just a few other tidbits here and there about the alligator people from 1959. Now, that's coming out here in a couple of days on Thursday. Remember, Thursday is also the Monster Kid Radio Crash. I will have my recorder there at the Santo and Blue Demon film, which means I'm going to be recording at the theater, and you're going to get to hear that next week on the show if you can't join us in person. On a personal note, I want to go ahead and thank everybody here for all the love and support that you've shown me on Facebook. Those of you who know me or follow me on Facebook, consider me a Facebook friend or vice versa, have seen that I've posted a few things about my grandmother lately. She just passed away at the age of 95, and it's really hitting me and my family pretty hard. I'm continuing to do business as usual as best as I can, 
in the near future, there may be a week or two where there is only one episode of Monster Kid Radio, or we might even skip a week while I am flying down to Arizona for services and other arrangements. So I want to thank everybody for your love and support on Facebook and the personal messages that I've received and the few voicemails that I've received. And I appreciate everybody's patience. If we do have to go ahead and have to put things on hold here at Monster Kid Radio while I deal with that. Now, my grandmother's not the kind of person who would like me to mope around and, and not take care of business. One of the things she would say to me repeatedly is, don't worry about me, honey. So I'm going to go ahead and try to do what I do here on Monster Kid Radio for you guys and gals. So thank you for listening. And again, thank you for your support. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution at non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Don't Push the Button. That belongs to the band The Dead Rocks. It's on their album International Brazilian Surfs, and they gave us permission to play that on this episode of Monster Kid Radio for all of you. Talk to you here in a couple of days. (laughs) 